This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. Thanks for all your feedback, shares on socials, and reviews on Apple Podcasts. It all helps to spread the word. So if you like what you hear, please share it with your Weller-loving mates. Now this week on the podcast, a ridiculously bloody lovely treat as I meet Nikki Weller. By the power of modern technology, Paul's sister chats family life, the early days in Stanley Road Woking, Paul kicking off his incredible career in music, the Jam and Style Council fan clubs, the solo comeback, last year's On Sunset, and so much more. So let's get into it. Nikki Weller, hello. Thank you very much for having me. Very kind. This is a joy, I tell you, because tell me where you are right now. Um, I'm at my mum's actually tonight. I'm down in Ripley in Surrey. So I, I come down a couple of times a week usually. So um, yeah, I came down this morning, stay the night and then um, doing a bit of sorting out with my mum. Yeah, so that's why I look a bit knackered actually tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure whether you can say that about your mum. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for knitting, it's in the cupboard mum, over there. This is so exciting because so many people have kind of said about the Weller family as a whole and the kind of unit with your mum, your dad, you, Paul, and, and just how important that was to kind of this entire story. So um, I'm really looking forward to getting into this. My first question on the podcast is usually, when did you first discover Paul Weller? But that's a bit of a strange yeah. one for you. <laughs> yeah. but I'm guessing you can probably yeah. remember when he first entered your world in a way. Annoying brother. <laughs> the annoying brother. The annoying brother, Yeah, Exactly. We were in Stanley Road when Paul kind of got into music. And at the time, his his best mate was Steve Brooks. Can you hold on one second? Yeah. Mum's looking for knitting. Hold on. <laughs> Sorry about this, darling. What's she knitting? 
Oh, mum knits squares for charity. She oh, knits hundreds of squares for a, the charity called Blankets Without Borders, and they make up these blankets for people that are in like sheltered accommodation and keeps her busy. <laughs> you were telling us, Paul and Steve, yeah. Yeah, we were in Stanley Road. Steve was one of Paul's best mates at school, and his mum and dad were splitting up. And his mum asked my mum if if she could like look after him for a little while while they were kind of in the middle of a divorce. So he came to stay with us. Supposed to be for a few months, I think, but he was about how long has he stayed? Two years, I reckon. Wow, really? Um, wow. Yeah. So I remember my dad taking Paul and Steve for a, a guitar lesson at Maxwell's. It used to be Maxwell's, where the old police station was in Woking. Next door to that was on the corner was an old music shop called Maxwell's, and they so they went there for a, they had two lessons, and then they then they decided that they didn't need any more lessons. They were already already the Beatles, so um, <laughs> it was kind of like just them two bumming around really, and you know picking it up. Which obviously they did really well, and um, they were sort of playing stuff like move uh, groovy kind of love, and you know Beatles tracks and stuff like that. And then obviously they started writing themselves, so it was quite early on actually. For those that don't know, Woking is kind of I'm trying to think how far out down the A3, about what 45 minutes, 40 minutes away from London in the car. Yeah, not far at all. Just off the A3 by Wisley, you kind of go, or you can go towards sort of Chertsey and come into Woking that way. But it's not it's not far from um, from London at all. It's a quick, pretty quick. I mentioned the kind of the family unit there. It seemed to me and to the to the people who kind of got in touch with questions for you, because everybody's like, oh, you got to ask this, you got to ask this. Well, at which point did you kind of, all the family kind of realised that actually Paul had some kind of talent and it worth kind of getting behind him? I mean, my dad was always pushy with my brother. Mum and dad would both set up anything we wanted to go to, really. I mean, I was into dancing. Across the road from Stanley Road was a little drill hall, which has just been knocked down, which is a real shame. But I used to go ballroom dancing over there. I used to go to karate. I used to go to St. John's Ambulance. I mean, you name it, I went to it. My mum was great. She, like, dropped me off and take me anywhere I wanted to go, really. Even though, you know, funds were sort of a bit tight and we weren't working-class family, didn't have a lot of money. We were, yeah, we were pretty poor, actually. You know, I remember my brother, as even younger then, wanted to set up a, a football team and my dad was like yeah okay I'll look after I'll look after you you know I'll get the games and blah 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 but it turned out in the end my brother was so crap at football that he was sitting on the sidelines and my dad was like this is ridiculous he said I don't mind having a football team but you're not even playing because you're so rubbish so he, when he got into music I think my dad was chuffed to bits because really kind of found his true vocation really mm. in life but to be honest with you, we've always had music. It was always music in the in the house because when we lived in Stanley Road, under the stairs um, in Stanley Road in the in middle hallway, my dad had an old upright piano. And my dad was an amazing pianist. He played everything on the blacks. But you could literally name a tune. Hum, my mum would hum him a tune and he'd like, that's it, he'd be playing the whole thing. And so he had a real ear for music. And my brother obviously took that from him as well. There'd be Paul doing Beatles tunes on there, my dad doing his rock and roll and all his uh, stuff like that. And then me be doing classical stuff because I was having lessons. And we were very lucky because even though we didn't have any money, we were very lucky as kids to be able to do whatever we wanted to do. Our mom, both my mum and my dad kind of um, made sure that we did that. My brother got his guitar. It was either like, let's have the phone cut off or, the, or something cut off and to get him a guitar that week. Do you know what I mean? So it, that's how that's how life was in the, yeah. in the Weller household, wow. which is brilliant. Really great childhood. Don't let anybody tell you any different than my no. brother would. But it, it was a great childhood. Yeah, we were we had really good times, actually. I read something somewhere about there being lots of kind of dancing in the house, which I guess would kind of link in with the music thing. Would yeah, right? singing. My mum had a big, you know, Motown collection and she'd always be singing around the house. Like I say, my dad loved Nat King Cole. 
all that kind of stuff. My brother was into the Beatles. I was into Bowie, T-Rex, David Essex, you know, so quite a, a fun-filled music house, I suppose. I love Bowie. I love T-Rex, and that whole kind of, you know, glam thing that was going on. And obviously, Roxy Music came in under that as well. My, my ultimate, I loved, absolutely loved David Cassidy and David Essex. And I don't even care that I'm saying that on a, on a podcast because they're my great <laughs> pleasure. That's still, those songs still stack up. They still, that's a whole separate podcast about our love of David Essex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, should have, you should do a guilty pleasures as well. Yeah, absolutely. And they obviously they're playing Woking. They're kind of putting in the hours. And there's this whole thing about 10,000 hours to, to get to genius is the idea. I mean, certainly they kind of put in a shift around the Woking clubs and stuff and playing absolutely. these kind of sets, I mean, they? the bottom of our garden Stanley Road literally over the fence was Woking Workmen's Club within the space of a triangle there was like Woking Workmen's at the bottom of our garden across the road by the drill hall was the Liberal Club and at the top of the road was the British Legion so they literally were in a triangle I mean they didn't really get many gigs in the British Legion because they were a bit too uh, raucous for them I think and uh, actually in the Liberal Club they did get banned from there because Bruce got on top of the piano and started playing his bass <laughs> on the piano but that's another story but the Woking Workmen's Club was where Steve and my brother started playing, you know, and they'd have like a little, I know, sort of 20 minute set that they'd got together. And then the bingo would start. So you'd have to stop, you know, and then the, the cockle man would come around with his prawns and everything. And then they'd be like, well, we've run out of songs, Dad. And he'd be like, well, just play them again. They won't know. So they play the, the same tunes again, you know, and it, but that's how they started in there. It was great. That's brilliant, and isn't it? And there was a guy, what are you called? Paddy McGuinness, Mum. Paddy McGuinness. Yeah, Paddy McGuinness was the local butcher, but he was also the social secretary for Woken Workmen's Club. He loved my dad and he, he liked the boys and he was always putting them on. It was also uh, where Dick and Lil Parfit, who's Ricky's mum and dad, Ricky Parfit's mum and dad lived in Shearwater. And um, so they, we would all go around the club together and I think it was Lil that probably got me up dancing, doing a bit of ballroom and stuff. Come on, you two, get up on the floor and dance, you know, when my brother was playing. It was like, we had to, and then everyone else would get up on the, you know, we were kind of like the uh, the Stooges. Yeah, we were rent a crowd, weren't we? We were the Stooges, right? <laughs> rent a crowd. I love the idea that nobody's coming to watch and there's the family ones because, you know. It's great, yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> How old were you when it clicks that actually there's something here and they're kind of, you know, the, the jam has formed. I know that Steve Brooks obviously yeah. left and, and um, Bruce and Rick come in. I reckon... I was probably 12, 13 when they started to do gigs at uh, the Woking Workmen's Club. They used to always also play a place called Michael's Club, which was a bit of a plastic gangster's gaff in Woking. And actually, they shouldn't have been even playing there because they were underage, you know, to be 18 to get in there. But, yeah, they used to play there a lot. Of, that was a Friday night residency. My dad had got them up there. And then, then there was a shooting one night. <laughs> so that was, that was shut down and the police turned up and nobody could go back to Michael. So it was it was quite oh, mad. No. <laughs> the circuit's getting smaller yeah. by the minute. With Bruce yeah. dancing on the piano. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. yeah. We'd already left Stanley Road by then. I think we'd just moved to Bamboo Drive. So... Uh, which was a council house. And so ours was like a big, massive 200-foot garden. And then the other end of that was another 200-foot garden. And and our friend, my my brother's friend, Tufty, lived, Steve Carver, known as Tufty, lived in there as well. And um, I went out with his brother, Pete, at that time. So it was all kind of like we used to come across each other's gardens and stuff. I think it was about 14 when we moved to to, um, Barrymore Drive. And I remember my my brother didn't stay that long in in, uh, Barrymore Drive before he moved up to London. But... Prior to that, he was kind of going up into the Marquee and the Roxy and, you know, all these different clubs and stuff, 100 Club. And he went to see the Pistols with Tufty, I remember, and he, he'd bought this 
kind of workman's boiler suit, you know, and he had my mum spray painting it in the hall in the kitchen for him, you know. That's what your trendy mum does in them days. <laughs> and um, I remember him coming back from there, and, and if because if, if you ever heard the demo of in the city, it's quite slow. And then all of a sudden he went to see the pistols and it was like basically speeded up 100 miles an hour and became that sort of, you know, that, that anthem of that time, really. And I think it really it really opened his eyes and really changed the world. And, and well, it did. I mean, you know, it changed music in general, didn't it? It was just like anybody was like, oh, everyone can get up and play however crap they were. They could get up with a guitar and yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. play a tune and stuff. There were so many clubs at that time as well. It was brilliant. And then, of course, that's when my dad then got them onto the London scene, sort of like as a new wave punk band. They weren't really punk, but they were too smart to be punks and they didn't like the gobbin and all that stuff. But, mm. you know, that's how it kind of all come about, really. So many people have talked on this podcast to me about about those live gigs and the kind of, and you mentioned the speed of the songs. It's like the yeah. energy and the ferociousness yeah. of those kind of things. And what are your memories of those kind of early days of those gigs? Because you had a role to play as well on the merch stand. So a yeah, lot of people I have mentioned this. <laughs> My mum turned our little coal shed in Barrow Drive into like a little office for me and clad it all out. And uh, we turned it into the Jam Fan Club because basically we were getting sackfuls of mail turning up. You know, Paul Weller woke in or the Jam woke in. And the postman just turned up with these great big sacks and we started opening it all and started up the Jam Fan Club. And then we got kind of like badges and I got to, even though I was underage, we, I got to all the Marquee and the Roxy and the 100 Club and um, the Vortex, uh, Nashville, all those different clubs and flog jam badges, you know, these big blue jam badges and they were 10 pence at the time it was a lot of money that was and then we started doing t-shirts online through the fan club and stuff but going to those gigs was just it was so exciting I just remember you know my dad be like come on don't go to school this afternoon just leave we'll pick you up and you can come to London with us we're going up to the vortex or whatever and it was just brilliant you know and, and and it was seeing all those punk bands it was so exciting it really was I mean a lot of them were most of them were crap to be honest with you but you know, there was some great bands as well, like Blondie and stuff like that. It was just like, I was just blown away when the first time I saw Blondie on stage. I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, great, great fun. I mean, much better than going to Nappy or Disco. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> How much mail did you get? Like loads and loads of it every day? Yeah, sackfuls of it. Yeah, wow. it literally. We would actually get the neighbours to come in write envelopes out of us open the letters because there was so much mail to open but you know what at that time there was no computers and no photocopies it was all done by hand and we basically answered everybody by hand you know then I got a little typewriter my dad found in a empty house that's another story um and then obviously at that time my dad thought Polydor signed up the jam and he thought that it came with an office in the middle of Stratford Place in, on Oxford Street. So my dad had rock up there a couple of times a week and sort of commandeer an office, bung the little porter Charles on the door, a tenor, and he'd let him into Polydor. And I'd go with him and run off all the fan club stuff for nothing. Until <laughs> <laughs> we got sussed out one day and he's like, look, John, we've signed the, um, the band, not you. <laughs> you, know, you haven't got an office in Polydor, but it's quite funny. I mean, talk about chance in it, really, but what great fun. Brilliant. So what, and what did you get as, as a member of the Jam fan club then? Okay, so initially you got, you joined up, it was like five, I think it was five quid for the year, wasn't it? And for that year, you got four, it was like a quarterly thing. So you got four items. So you'd get a letter and a badge. Um, you'd get priority to gigs. We did like the flexies at Christmas. Mm. We did little flexi discs. Um, then one year we did a little book. 
book matches. And so you'd always get like these little special things that people like still write to me and go, look at this, I've still got. It's like bloody hell, you know, all those years ago. Yeah, it was good fun. I've got a load of boxes and matches if you want. Yeah, mum's still got all her memorabilia. I've I've, I've heard about Anne the Magpie. We'll come to that (laughs) in a minute. At time, before that, I I joined the David Essex fan club. And when I look at what I got for the David Essex fan club for five years, it was crap compared to the Jam one. It was like... Even yeah. though we run it ourselves, it was a it was a good fan club actually. I mean, I love a bit of admin, but that sounds horrendous. <laughs> that sounds yeah, it like was. Hard, it was, that sounds like hard work. work. And I got paid five quid a week for doing that. <laughs> I'm feeling like now you want to haggle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now you realise you deserve it. Right. Paul's the lead singer, the songwriter. John, your dad's the manager, and I mentioned earlier this kind of real family unit. So both tried to involve like you and your mum in kind of everything to do with the band, like you say all, all the time, right? It was, yeah, it was a real mom- family operation. Yeah, they, my mum went and got the band, like these suits from Burton's, you know, um, these black suits from Burton's with the white shirts and ties and stuff. And, of course, they'd come home from the gigs in, in London just soaked to the skin. You know, my mum would have to dry them out and get them dry cleaned or whatever. Everyone thought it was a bit of a fashion statement when the sh- trousers started getting shorter and shorter. It was actually because they they'd been cleaned so many times that they'd actually just sort of shrunk. <laughs> But, um, yeah, they had the one suit and then they got grey ones after that. So they got really kind of, you know, quite spoiled. Yeah, it was um, it was a bit of a family affair. Like I say, my dad was brilliant. He'd, he'd say, don't go to school today, babe. We're going to do Top of the Pops. And I'd be like, no, I've got to go to school. And he's like, no, come to the Pops, you know. I was like, "Miss, um, oh, I've got to go to school. I can't not miss that. And it was really good fun. Now, obviously, this is the fan podcast in a way. And um, yeah. so many of the fans have talked about their experiences of kind of before the gigs, so like your dad would just kind of let people into sound check and, and stuff. And then afterwards, so um, people would be able to kind of queue up afterwards and the jam would be there behind a table signing things yeah. and stuff. That's I mean, I mean, you know, behind the table, they'd just come into the hall and right. see the band. You know, then days, I mean, you only had your little Instamatic cameras. There wasn't any of these phones and stuff like that, but they always sign everything. They were pretty good like that. The jam become huge. There's number one singles, there's number one albums. And it, and it feels like there's quite a lot of pressure on Paul to just kind of keep churning out the material, tour, singles, yeah. albums and stuff. Yeah. Did you feel any of that as a family at all? Was there anything? No, Paul would move to London with his girlfriend by then. So, um, you know, he was a kind of a little bit more separated from us. But obviously my dad as his manager, you know, you, you kind of heard about the, you know, this had happened or that had happened today because obviously my dad was, you know, he was there. But they were working. They worked their socks off. They If they weren't touring, they were in the studio. And if they weren't in the studio, Paul was writing new material. So it was a bit of a... I wrote a bit of a roller coaster like that, I think, for him. He must have felt pressurised. You know, to do two albums in the first year was pretty tough going, really. Well, yeah, and from in the city to kind of sign off was was five years, which is just yeah, remarkable, exactly. really, isn't it? Nothing, and, uh, is it? No, and, and we'll talk about the legacy in a bit because I think that's really interesting and important as well. But can you remember the day that you found out that the jam was splitting? I think Paul came to the house in Bramall Drive and told my dad. And, yeah, and dad said, like, are you mental? You're not going to repeat what I said. Yeah, yeah, it was blue, and uh, no, my dad was gutted. He was absolutely devastated, you know. But I knew, just knew that Paul would kind of go on and do something else because that's how he is, you know. It's like he never looks back; he always looks forward, and he's tested that out really over the last forty years, hasn't he? So, yeah, well, yeah, you know. So you worked at this time. You worked at Solid Bond as well, right? So you're kind of started, yeah. I did. Am I right thinking you started as receptionist and then work your way up to office yeah. manager, and, did, and then you're yeah. going on tours and stuff with the Star Council and all that, yeah? 
Yeah, that was great fun. I mean, I, I started off as the uh, receptionist. I was about 20. I'd just coming up for 21 because Paul's girlfriend, Jill, at the time, she was the office manager. And then when they split up, I kind of jumped in and became the office manager. And, you know, it wasn't just the jam recording. There. We used to have loads of different bands recording. Lots of people used to come in and do jingles. Um, you know, I remember one day David Essex walking in. It was like, oh, my <laughs> so, yeah, God. No, I was working there at the time, yeah. <laughs> David Essex coming in, it was like, oh, my God. You know, my, my idol has just walked in to record something in our studio. And then, obviously, the Style Council came around in eight, end of 82 and started touring, going out on the road with them. Yeah, it was good. Good fun. And again, you're kind of running a, a fan club as well, right? For the Style yeah. Council, the Torch Society, yeah. And that's huge. It's like 7,000 members or something. Not as big as the Jam fan club, but it was nice because suddenly we're going to gigs and seeing girls turning up because before it had been all male orientated, you know. Um, but then suddenly they were coming with their girlfriends and actually girls were really getting into the Style Council. So, yeah, it was, it was, that was great. It was a totally different vibe, but just as much fun. And, and if not more, it was probably one, some of my best time of ever working. I think that's got to be the best job I ever had, actually, working with Style Council. Love the music. People couldn't really get their head around it, a lot of the, lot of the jam fans, but, you know, they came round again at the end of it. Some of them might have departed, but <laughs> but most of them turned around and, and uh, followed, started following the Style Council. Were you able to be in the studio at times or were you too busy running the office that you couldn't see any of those kind no, of we, You know, we, it, was a, it was a proper, like, nine to five job in the studio. It, was a, it really was. And even Paul's structure of recording uh, in the studio was based on that as well. It was like nine to five. Stop for lunch, you know, and it was all very kind of it was it was like that. And I think if I don't know if you've seen the recent Style Council documentary, mm. you know, Dee Brooke mentions that she's like it was like having a nine to five job, and it really it really was structured like that. You know, I used to call them school dinners. We had a menu up, and you could have like your one veggie or your you know your dinner for the day, and then they come down, and sit, and literally have their lunch in the studio down in the in the kitchen part, go back to work. It was it was quite a structured day like that actually, but wow. you know. Lots of people coming in and out, you know, during the wedge time and Junior and uh, Omar and all these different acts coming in and out. It was great, great fun. You know, that's where they bought that office from the Polydor. So, yeah, you can imagine how many artists used to come in there because Polydor was in Stratford Place, which was literally just by Bond Street, opposite Bond Street Tube Station. That's where the old Polydor used to be. So to have that studio at the end of Marble Arch was uh, pretty convenient for them. And then, of course, when Dad and Paul bought it, it was uh, brilliant. It was uh, great fun. We were known for our office parties as well. Oh, well, <laughs> I've heard well, of it. Dennis Monday was talking about one of the office parties yeah. being legendary. Yeah. So what happened at these office parties then? <laughs> well, it was always normally fancy dress, um, but uh, there was a few times when I told certain people it was fancy dress and then it hadn't been. And I remember Paul's agent, who was Martin Hopewell, used to run Cowbell Agency, turned into primary talent later on. But he turned up as a great white hunter. He had a bloody great big white tiger on his back come down the road and saw everybody like oh you know <laughs> you bastard you told me it was fancy dress again you know so he's walking around as a great white hunter all night but it, no it was um you can imagine lots of drink yeah there's an element where obviously you're kind of you know you're really close to paul and you're working with the style council but at the same time there must be a bit where he kind of comes in with some new lyrics or comes in with his song for the first time and you're like wow this is incredible this this, this guy's got some talent annoyingly is my brother but <laughs> yeah i mean i i still think that i mean i think on sunset last year was probably one of my favorite albums he's ever written 
And I just think it's a real shame that he hasn't been able to go out and play it, you know. Mm. Um, but obviously every musician is in that same boat. But I just think it's really sad, you know, from the conception of On, on Sunset, for instance, you know, it'd be nearly two years since he's played live and no one's heard it live yet. It's a bit sad, really. But um, there's been obviously some tracks you just think, oh, I don't like that or whatever. But a majority of it, I absolutely loved it. I thought the tunes were brilliant. Even when it went into, like, you know, the Paul Weller movement and stuff, it was it was incredible. It was just a whole change again, you know. But, uh, yeah, we've been lucky that he's just kind of, like I said, he's always moved forward. So he's always gone with the flow and changed changed uh, direction every time. And, and I don't know how he does that, but it's, it's really clever that he does do that. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, kind of this this solo career alone spanning 30 years. Yeah. You mentioned those kind of touch points or those memories of kind of kicking off the the, the movement and, and kind of coming back, because that must have been, again, a big shock around Polydor not wanting to release the Modernism album and the yeah. family then kind of going, presumably going, crap, what now? Yeah, David Munns, he was the... Uh, hmm. <laughs> yeah, which was really weird because in later years when I worked to work at Nordoff Robbins uh, Music Therapy as a fundraising manager... He was our chairman and it was like he was I was being introduced to him one day and I was like, Oh, for God's sake, you know, like please don't hold it against me. My name's a wet I'm I'm a, I'm a weller. And he was like, Oh, okay, but you know, he didn't he never held it against me, but you know, I could tell you some stories about that. But he, he was the one that turned down the album. It's like what a big mistake you made there, you know. There that you must go. have been that must have been <laughs> such a shock, but also Yeah. Huge shock. Yeah. Paul's talked about kind of not doing too much and looking after the kids yeah. and being like a house husband. Yeah. So that must have been weird for your dad as well, I would have thought, of kind of not being out on the road so much and, and you know, being yeah, outside the music of, industry a bit. Yeah, there was a little time when they weren't going out on the road and obviously Paul was just, you know, working in studio, recording or whatever. But, you know, again, who would have known that the rest of his career was going to happen like that? It was incredible, really. I think my dad even must have just thought, like, you know, the longevity is this, this is, is quite incredible. I think he thought it was all over after the jam yeah i bet yeah and then they kind of get paul where he's kind of i mean at the height of his powers and we've talked about stanley road the family home that must have been such a lovely thing to kind of see stanley road the album and it's selling millions you know it's yeah. he's back yeah, at the absolutely. i mean huge absolutely huge well, right the council stopped putting stanley road signs up because they had them they used to get nicked on a weekly basis so in the end they put these things up that no one could actually steal that it was like every week someone would nick you know <laughs> the sign at the bottom of the road and the sign at the top of the road but uh yeah they 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 sussed it out so that no one could actually nick on the <laughs> I have to be honest I have been past those signs in the car and gone yeah I wonder what and I, and, and the same How with easy that, they pick it out yeah yeah and the same with um boundary lane as well <laughs> boundary road yeah yeah that's right yeah that um, Paul went we went back in, must have been before Christmas, actually. We were out, went out to the, the Indian Cemetery. It's just all been done up just on, yeah, on the bridge. And they've done a beautiful job. They've really made yeah. it love because it, it was really run down. And as kids, they would all go over there and they've got all their names still carved in the bricks and stuff over there. So we took one of Paul's youngest ones over and a friend of mine. We went out for the day. And then we walked all the way along the canal back past Boundary Road back where my mum and dad's first house was, where they had Paul, actually, on Walton Terrace, which is amazingly still standing, uh, not much else standing. But, um, yeah, that's still there. And it's, um, yeah, it's just kind of, like, nice to have that. You know, Paul's like, oh, God, do you remember when we used to do this? And, you know, it's quite nice having days like that out, really. Don't yeah, have okay. that many of them like that, but it was no, good. Okay. It's good fun. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So a few questions from the fans, if that's all right. Um, and we're going to touch on about the young idea, which is this incredible exhibition that you kind of put together with an amazing team. I know we, we've kind of had London, we've had Liverpool, hopefully coming back to Brighton. I know it was meant to come back. Um, It's essentially the biggest ever collection of jam memorabilia. And and this is where we're going to talk about Anne the Magpie, because where does all this stuff come from? Well, when we did um, Somerset House, I mean, I... I, to be honest with you, we, me and Den had looked for places to do this exhibition for a good 12 to 16 months, and it was just like nowhere in London was suitable. And then my brother had started up Real Stars Are Rare or was in the concept of doing Real Stars Are Rare, you know, his clothing thing. Yeah. And yeah. the PR company he was using were actually based in Somerset House. And I met the bloke from this PR company, and he's like, look, you know, I could, I've got an in at Somerset House. You could kind of... Um, Go and see them if you like. And I went, I think we're a bit, they're a bit posh for us, you know. So, no, no, mum, you talk. I'm going to the kitchen. It's fine. Yeah, I just, to be honest with you, I didn't think we had a hope in hell's chance of getting into Somerset House because they were posh. They were a real posh lot. But we went there. It was then my business partner and my partner, Russell, we three of us started up a Nice Time Inc. It was our little company. And so we did this pitch to Somerset House. And about a week later, we heard back that we'd got the gig and, they turned down about three other people and we were like, oh, my God, now what do we do? You know, they put this curator in with us. They were like, right, you can't do it yourself because you've never done this before, but we're going to give you this curator and she's going to tell you how you put it together and blah, blah, blah. So we had this massive lockup we've got in Acton and it was where Real Stars of Air had been based out of as well. So we had lockup next door to Real Stars and got everything out of there. We'd been to my mum's, me and my boyfriend had been to my mum's garage, pulled it out of my dad's bags, and videos and cut-ins and photographs and everything you can possibly imagine so it was like Den had all the kind of records and the drum kit he bought from Rick Butler and guitars and all that style of stuff but he didn't have that personal collection so he didn't have like my brother's school books and all that sort of stuff which we found in my mum's garage so um when we did uh, when we did Somerset House we were kind of limited on space it wasn't a huge the hugest place but it was the first time they'd ever done an exhibition that you had to pay to get into it at Somerset Hotel. Always free. And we were like, look, we can't do this unless, you know, we've got we've got to charge people to do it because it's cost us money to do this, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it turned into like a massive success for Somerset House. They absolutely loved it and it was extended and all the rest of it. And then by the time we were asked to go to Liverpool, the Arts Council up there had um, given us a grant to 
put on an exhibition and, and the Cunard was empty, sitting empty, amazing building. But it was about 10 times the size of Somerset House. And we were like, oh, my God, how are we going <laughs> to fill this place? You know, between me and Den and my, my boyfriend, Russell, we kind of worked out this huge, huge room that had no walls, weren't allowed to put anything on the walls because it was listed. So we had to make rooms. We had to make our own rooms, which is how we did, you know, Stanley Road. And then it went through with each album and blah, blah, blah. And by the time we got the stuff out, it was like, Jesus, this is just, there was so much stuff. There was so much to see and so many vitrines. It was incredible. And then, but such the nicest place ever I mean it was just I'll tell you what the six months I had in Liverpool I just absolutely loved it it was like my second home I literally I think I came home three times to London in that six months I lived up there the whole time worked every day in in the um, exhibition and we did Q&A's and interviews and read gigs and all sorts of stuff and it was it was absolutely phenomenal I loved it I loved the Liverpool people I was out every night going to a gig you know the cavern's just like my favorite place ever (laughs) Um, and then I just thought that was kind of it really we're never going to get anything as good as that and then we were approached by AGMP I'd known Adrian Gibson a long time he was he used to be the um used to be the manager of the jazz cafe years ago and he started this company up AGMP and was looking after people like style counselors and from the jam and loads of different other bands UB40s and stuff like that and they'd said look you know do you want to do this exhibition in Brighton yeah right if you think we can do it and again we we'd even uncovered more stuff that we never showed in the previous two exhibitions so the plan last year was that you know it would be even more stuff in vitrines it was going to be on brighton beach council were right behind it and the train was going to be covered like a transglobal train coming up from the um what do you call it? Pin, and then yeah. you bring you down to the thing and then we'd have mod rallies. And, all that. and it was just, it was gutting that it was, you know, we weren't able to do that last year. And, you know, we'd love to do that this year, but obviously we've got to see what happens because, yeah. you know, nobody knows at the moment, do they? And I think we're going to take a, a stand on it at Easter, I think, once the government kind of, you know, tell us what's going on. Because it doesn't sound like anything's going to happen until everyone's got this vaccine. We're not going to be allowed tourists. We're not going to be travelling anywhere. We're not going to be doing nothing. You know, Glastonbury just cancelled. That's a big sign of like the music business, really. So, yeah, we just got to kind of play it by ear. But my boyfriend said the other day that apparently he'd read somewhere that after this pandemic, that they think it's going to be more like the Roaring Twenties, that people are just going to go mental, go out everywhere and go every out every night. And, and it yeah. probably will be like that because we've been locked up for so long. You know, I can't yeah. wait to go to a gig. I, you know, I had a message from Clem Burke last year, you know, Blondie's drummer, and he just said, I really hope we can play next year. Blondie's last, I think it's probably maybe her last tour or something, but she's playing next November and it's like – Will we actually be allowed to go to a gig in November? Who knows? We just don't know, do we, at the moment? I would see any music right you know, now. Me too. I really would. And, you know, I think some of these online things that have been going on have been fantastic. I mean, Chris Difford does this thing every yeah. couple of every couple of weeks, and he did one for Nordoff Robbins for me back end of last year. He just sits in his shed in the back of his garden, and, you know, you, you've got a whole load of people on Zoom. And I know it's not the same, but it's bloody good, actually. You know, I've even watched, like, Simon Day doing Fast Show, like these little sketches and that. You just play a fiver and you just go in on it, and it's hilarious, you know. At least it's a bit of entertainment. Yeah. Because I just think everyone's like, just starved of it really starved of other human interaction (laughs) i think i think that's what it is i think it i think it is i think it's that whole socializing thing we just you know we just can't do it can we so 
Now you're right. We're going to go crazy. And I, you mentioned, so you mentioned your mum's shed. That's like, it sounds like like 30 years. This has not been looked into. And then suddenly you're uncovering Paul's school exercise bo- books. Well, yeah, that was weird because me and Russell were clearing out my brother's shed at the barn, which is here in Ripley, where my mum lives across from my mum is my brother's recording studio. And we cleared his shed out for him quite a few years back now before Somerset House, before 2015. Right. And that's where we found his exercise books. You know, and it had like geography or maths on the front, but it was one of the scrap of work in there. Do you know what I mean? It was just poetry, doodles, um, stories, songs he'd written, you know, poetry like the bogeyman. It was like all about someone with bogeys and that. And it was just, I read some <laughs> of his kids and it was just, they thought it was hilarious. And I was like, well, dad wrote these, you know, when he was about 12, 13 years old. And it was that, that sort of stuff's priceless, really. Yeah. Yeah. When you see stuff like that, um, yeah, yeah, we, it was in, it was a it was a combination of our own personal items that we'd saved over the years. My brother's shed, my mum's garage, you know, clearing through stuff. Um, quite incredible, really, what what you find. Never been uncovered. Oh well, fingers crossed for twenty twenty one. Yeah, um, yeah, so, so, so. so a couple of quick questions from the from the fans um, from Sean Wilson. Uh, what would be your fondest memory from Paul's career? Fondly, fondest memory. Tough, isn't it? I can come uh, back. You can you can have some thinking time. Yeah. Um, so Tony C said, "Love chatting to you at pre gigs in the early days at the merch stands." Uh, Matt Sapsford said, "How stressful were the fan clubs?" <laughs> <laughs> Quite stressful at times, especially in the early days when you you know you had to get in like five neighbours to come and like, write envelopes out for you because you didn't have printers and all that stuff in them days. You know, churning out envelopes and, and labels. We actually literally had like five or six old ladies writing writing them out of a big book. <laughs> so you'd have to do that four times a year. Do you know what I mean? If you had like 11,000 members in the fan club, you had 11,000 envelopes. Wow. All the time. <laughs> yeah, With the whole of Stanley Road stamping. Yeah, exactly. But also to, just to try and – they were pretty good, the boys, but um, I've got to say my brother was probably the best. He, it was always like – because I'd, I'd, every time I'd want, like, Rick, you've got to do something this time. You've got to write a letter or you've got to do a doodle or you've got to do something, you know. And we always had competitions where the fans could win stage clothes. And um, so kind of trying to keep that all together really was, yeah, it was quite tough. But, it was, but again, it was, you know, it was good fun. Yeah, I bet. I mean, um, yeah. I was asked, I was going to ask how much they had kind of creative input and, and whether it was kind of yeah, you know, it did. It's just that they were away so often that I'd have to I'd have a stack of stuff like this to get signed, and when they got, they'd be like, "You're not going anywhere. You sit down and you sign this lot," and, and they did. You know, I was always I've always been bossy, even as a teenager. But I've seen lots of the letters back, and obviously in the exhibition stuff, and and online, there's loads of kind of um, Twitter and blogs and all sorts where so many of the fans are kind of sharing these personal letters from Paul back, like yeah. where the fan has written a letter and he's kind of come back. He answered, yeah, no, he did. I mean, mad. you know, Derek D'Souza, the photographer, he's got like these letters that he had, and even Den, Den, Den was like a you know fourteen year old kid or whatever, standing at the front of the stage with a little tape recorder. And my brother said to him one day, what, what, are, you, what are you taping, man? And he was like, I'm taping your gigs. He's like, is that all right? And he's like, oh, yeah, as long as you send me a set, you know. <laughs> but he would, like, write to him regularly and sort of say, how's it going and things, you know. But they're unheard of these days. It was like he'd be a bootlegger, wouldn't he? He'd be, like, kicked yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But quite nice. I mean, you know, they were kids. I mean, my dad let them all in to soundcheck. There was more bleeding kids in the soundcheck than there was at the gigs sometimes, you know. It was um, quite mad, really. 
and everyone remembers that you know yeah yeah exactly these are these are kind of things that are, are stuck in people's heads for like 40 yeah. years can the exhibition tour the country how about bath says nick <laughs> let's see what happens yeah. um Stu Wilkinson has a great question, which was talking about your dad coming from the building trade, this kind of no-nonsense world, a former boxer. There was always a bit of friction with the record companies and the kind of, I guess there always would be between manager and and, and artist, right? And, and the question is, how did he cope with artists and their ideas, behaviour? He was a legend. Do you know how he would work to kind of get what he needed for Paul? Yeah, he, he literally, when they got signed, uh, I remember him going to do the signing in Polydor and they were like, oh, we've got this big lunch and he was like, oh, no, I don't want any of your lunches. Just come to get the money, come to collect our dough and then we'll sign the thing and we're off. My dad was like Roy Cropper. He ever had this little bag, you know, and it was like full up with cash. So he was like, yeah, I need this in cash. You know, we haven't got a bank account and it was, it's just, they must have just thought, oh, my God. And I remember when they first got signed, they were trying to get rid of my dad and talk the boys into like having a, a proper manager and and Paul's like, well, no, I'm not signing them. We're not, not doing it about my dad. You know, he's like, this is where he's, he's got us so far. And to be honest with you, he's had the most respect from so many people in the music business, you know, from somebody that had gone from the building site, never knew a thing about it. He's competed with all these like manager moguls and all these other people that have ripped people off. And my dad was just like the fairest person ever yeah. and very clever, really, really clever man. You know, he got, he got everything they wanted um, and he would just negotiate. I think, well, my dad always said that to me that I could actually sell snow to the Eskimos. And I think I probably run in my dad's footsteps rather than anything else. And, and he, that's what he was like. That's how he, he kind of, you know, he lived off his, his wits really. Like king of negotiation. No nonsense. You know, it was like yeah. black and white. So, yeah. No. yeah. So back to your question, fondest memory from Paul's career. <laughs> You've had some thinking time. Any ideas? You know, one of the fondest memories probably got nothing to do with the jam, but I remember going to the, was it the, hang on, let me, can we go, I mean, we're just going to go and get some yeah, yeah, go wall, on. my mum's wall, hold on. Go on. What's she going to get? <laughs> well, I just had to remember what it was called, but it was actually the, the British Rock and Pop Awards, 1980. Oh, nice. This is a bit, was this a gold disc, platinum disc? No, so this was the best single, Going Underground, 1980 at the time. Now, the reason that sticks in my mind is not because of the jam, but even though the jam were all there in the audience, it was because I met David Bowie. <laughs> he was there. Can you imagine the Rock and Pop Awards in 1980, which was actually run by Radio One, uh, Moon Musical Express, or Melody Maker rather, and the Daily, the Daily Mirror, and everybody and his wife was at that event. And I remember sitting in the audience thinking, oh, my God, there's David Bowie and there's... David Essex and there's blah 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 and there's Roxy Music and and I met as we went around the backstage. I remember meeting David Bowie and I was just I was speechless. He had this blue suit on and I was like, oh my god, I've just met my hero. My brother didn't get out of his seat to collect his award. Bruce and Rick went up and got it, but that was probably one of the highlights for me. But because it was because I met like some people that. I'd just been in awe of, really. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> sad. And that was when we got hold of this from the garage. This was all in little bits and pieces. And Den's mate got it all out and fixed it all up and stuff. So it's now my mum's. It's lovely. So like this, this is a lovely framed disc with the award yeah. from the um, from the Daily Mirror. And the, That's a one-off as well. You won't get another one then. Uh, oh, yeah, exactly. Unique, one-off. And yeah. I, yeah, I forget because actually for you, Paul is just Paul. Whereas for the rest yeah. of us, we're kind of a bit in awe and it's kind of like, you know, this legend. Whereas he's just like, 
rather poor and probably at times has been a bit annoying and you yeah. know all the, all the things that, you know, that families do <laughs> I'm sure he says the same about me as well but yeah. I don't there's no way I'm as annoying as him so. <laughs> <laughs> now a couple of things I've got to talk to you about before you go um one is yeah. St- Stinger the Belby tell oh, me about Stinger yeah. the Belby this is this is magical I love um, so I met Tina Freeman in Liverpool in 2016 she was this little mod that just looks amazing. She always looks immaculate. She looks like a, you know, a better version of Scylla Black, really, back in the day. And she's got everything down to a T. It's like if it's not 60, she won't wear it, even down to her hair and everything's immaculate. And she came into the exhibition and showed me and Dan her illustrations. And she had all these like mod pictures of Brighton and, you know, and it was like, yeah, they're lovely, you know, but, you know, you can put them on the walls if you want, if you sell some in the shop, blah, blah, blah. And then she happened to just show me this other thing that fell out of a bag and it was it was a dog on a scooter and I was like hang on a minute what's that what's that and it was like you know she's like oh that's my dog the new breed and she'd done like Bruce Foxtail and all these different names and stuff and I was like oh my god this is what's going to sell this is this is absolutely what's going to sell you've got to start doing all these mods on scooters as dogs you know so Josh had all the quadrophenia lot and it was just fantastic and she had this whole story board that she showed us and she wasn't going to I don't think she was going to show us that I think she was more interested in the the big artworks that she wanted to sell in the shop. And I was like, hang on a minute, this is, this is, you know, you're missing the trick here. You've got, this has got to come out as a book or whatever. And so all these years later, we kind of, last year we had a, no, it wasn't last year. That was crap year, wasn't it? It was the year before that. uh, (laughs) We've we've deleted last year, yeah. Yeah. From our our memories. (laughs) You know, it's like, no, it's nearly two years since we, Stinger came out. And so we got Claude Trofina all behind it, all the cast from that. And we went to a few events with them and she's already written the second and third books. She's just prolific. She's amazing. And her art is incredible. I've never known anybody quite as talented as Tina. So I just said, you know, I'd love to help out. And so, we kind of did it as a collaboration. You know, she said, oh, well, you could colour in the pictures, but you know, that's about as far as my talent goes. But I have got the gift of the gab and I, you know, I do kind of get people involved and stuff. So that's how I helped Tina in the book, really. Love it. And this is a kid's book inspired by Quadrophenia, as you say. I've seen pictures of every anybody and everybody holding it on, on Twitter and on socials. People know Noel Gallagher, Gary Crowley, et cetera, et cetera. Your gift of the gab helps you get this out to an I know, a lot of people, oh, right? right? Last year, I worked on the Trick Awards with my friend Shaney, who's married to Mick Tolbert, because I always have a stinger in my bag with me and bumped into Tony Adley, who's quite a good mate. And I was like, oh, this up, even though it was the Trick Awards, you know, and Tina was like, oh my God, how did you manage to get that one? That's wherever I am, it's, there's a famous person. It's like, quickly, hold this book up. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just, you know, Noel lives around the corner for me. It's like, I saw him one day and I was like, no, hold this up. And he, he was going, what's it for? And I was like, let my voice for, just hold it up and take a picture, you know. So it was like anything to promote Stinger, really. And it's a shame because last year we had so much stuff planned. And you can imagine around the exhibition, we were going to have a whole stinger weekend and, you know, scooters turn up and people dressed yeah. as dogs and all sorts of stuff. My mum was even going to come dressed as a bee, but um, <laughs> she, she had a bee up already and stuff. Oh. So it's pretty gutting, <laughs> yeah. One other thing I need to touch on as well is uh, if people haven't seen you, because um, this is a podcast, mm-hmm. you are in the Star Council video, Solid Bond in Your Hearts. Is that right? <laughs> I mean, Speak Like a Child. Oh. That was the first one we did up in the Melvin Hills. Uh, I've got a blonde wig on and a pink poncho is that the one on the bus is that the one on the bus yeah yeah, yeah. it's freezing up there three days we were up there filming that uh i was in ever-changing moods as a nymph of a wood nymph dressed up as a wood nymph brother wanted us just to wear like 
very scantily clad stuff and we were like no it's bloody freezing so <laughs> we kind of like you know we had a bit of a in between it was him it was me his girlfriend Jill at the time and Tim Pope's girlfriend Neve who was his girlfriend at the time he was the mad director and then I'm in solid bond and my heart in your heart as well so yeah there was a few videos I was in <laughs> I heard that you absolutely came the bar bill in on the um speak like a child one or the hotel bill or something as well is that right yeah that was yeah that uh, do you know what I'd love to see the outtakes because we did some crazy things we had a, we actually took a double bed out of one of the bedrooms and took it out on the snow and we, we all got on it Tracy and all of us and we we basically used it as like a a sleigh down the side of the hill. The hotel game mentor us. But none of that made the cut somehow. I don't know why it didn't. But Tim must have the outtakes somehow. No, do you know what? I'm going to contact Tim. If we do this exhibition, I want some of them outtakes as, um, you know, something else to see. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. We were talking the other day about, um, I was talking with Pat Gilbert from uh, Mojo Magazine. Oh, I love it, Pat. Yeah, he's amazing he's, bloke. Yeah, such a lovely guy. Is, is he working? Is he at work? He's working from home, yeah. I know we see Pat because his Mojo offices are in um, Camden, just at the wharf there. In my spare time, I work on the London Water Bus. Oh. Well, I did work on the London Water Bus, which goes from Little Venice to Camden and back. I do the commentary on the on the oh, canal boat, so... I meet up with Pat a few times and go and see him in his little mojo offices. So, yeah, he's a a lovely guy. He's a lovely guy. The reason I mention him is because you were just talking about um, the Star Council and the humour. And he was talking about Paul's probably, I think he's always got a bit of a reputation as as not being a fun guy, but the Star Council were very fun. And actually, he's got a great sense of humour from what Pat. Bloody funny sense of humour. I mean, you've only got to look at that that documentary that came out recently. It's it's bloody alert. But you see, it's who you bounce off, isn't it? When he met Mick Tolbert, Mick Tolbert is the funniest man ever. I mean, he, if he wasn't in a band, he'd be on stage because he was—he's bloody hilarious. He, you know, you've only got—he says something and it's so droll and it just cracks you up, you know. And so you couldn't be miserable around Mick. He was just, you know, he's good fun. His wife is my best friend, Janie, and just the pair of them are bloody hilarious, you know. And he just really brought out the best in my brother. And even I think at the end of that documentary, my brother just said, you know, it was fun, and it's like you don't really hear that lot out of my brother's mouth. So um, <laughs> it was—it was an incredibly funny time. We had. You know, look at Jerusalem. I mean, no one got Jerusalem at all, but some of the scenes in that were just hysterical. You know, it's a little yeah. bit of a cult movie, but it might, might, might come around one day. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Nikki. I've got a couple of final questions. Okay. Question number one is um, you're allowed one song, one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. Can be the jam, can be the stock. <laughs> I can't tell you the faces that Nikki's pulling. <laughs> can be the jam, the style council, or the solo years. Which one are you going to go with? Well, I can't have one from each. As it's you, you can have one for each. Yeah, I think that's only fair. Um, Down in Tube Station at Midnight is definitely my favourite jam song. Why that one? Yeah, and I'll tell you why. It's because every time I hear those lyrics, I get goosebumps in the back of my neck. Because the lyrics are just incredible when you hear it. I mean, if it was a poem, you know, you'd just be like, it it always gives me goosebumps, that one. That's my favourite. Uh, Star Council, too many Star Council ones, but I think probably something like Head Start for Happiness because it was just yeah. fun, fun, fun. Do you know what I mean? Just happy times. You think about the sunshine and you know all the stupid things we did on the videos and stuff. Uh, so that's probably my Head, head Start for Happiness. And of his latest stuff, I think the whole of On Sunset is probably um, my favorite, to be honest. That's last year, that was my in car. 
whole of the summer until it come out. Um, so I'm looking forward to the new album, actually. It's got a new album out this May. How far in advance do you get a listen? Because you mentioned before release that. Yeah, he he gave me... When did Sunset come out last year? It was, was July. It June, yeah, yeah, June, July, was yeah. July, yeah. I got a CD. I got a CD for the car back in the end, back end of March. So by the time it come out, I was, you know, well-versed with it. In fact, I'd, I'd played it to death, so I was kind of glad when the Star Council one came out because I had something else in the car. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to this new album, and I'm hoping to get a copy of that quite soon. That comes out in May. The studio at the moment just doing finishing off some production on it, apparently, this week. Just see how far he's got tomorrow. Final question. The aim of this podcast, for those that don't know, is for me to to live out my dream to be able to meet and interview Paul. What should I talk to him about? Food. Oh, right. Lots of food. Music. Uh, music. He's into what's best on Netflix at the moment. We've been, we'll compare that every week as to what we've watched. Oh, what's he watching? Come on, are you allowed to well, say or not? <laughs> yeah, the best thing we've watched in the last couple of weeks, we both said this, the best thing ever, was the Queen's Gambit. And it was really weird because when I was in isolation, I watched it back to back until I until it finished and he did exactly the same <laughs> so i said that's one of the best things on on netflix this year i think i've not seen that one yet i need to i need to watch the, i need to watch the queen's gambit yeah you do M- music is music a, and food and food and any type of food anything he likes anything he he loves scones and coffee and he goes over to the nest in ripley over here and gets his scone fix every day but no paul just likes food he's always on about what you're having for dinner or something you know <laughs> 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 Good. Yeah. Oh, I, figured, I figured that, and I thought the kids as well. I've got two young kids, so I yeah, thought the kids. And we'd the have kids that in common cool. as well. We'll be. Yeah, um, exactly. Nikki, this has been an absolute joy, um, and thank you for letting me into your home as well. I've loved every second of this. What an absolute joy to be in the in the Weller home, the Weller family home, uh, chatting with you. So <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Dan. Very welcome. Well, there you have it. I hope that did not disappoint Nikki Weller. Wow, wow, wow. My thanks to Nikki and to Mama Weller, Anne, for letting me drop into her home for a chat. That was our first, and I hope not last, chat with the Weller family. Now, since our chat, Nikki has also started fundraising for Romney House Cat Rescue. So if anyone listening wants to donate to them, please do, as they need all the help they can get at the moment. I'll drop a web link into the show notes. Now, next up on the Paul Weller Fan Podcast, we talk about Paul's music with Absolute Radio's Director of Music, James Curran. A man in charge of the songs played on their network of decades radio stations from 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, 10s and 20s. I think that's all of them, is it? Oh no, classic rock as well. Pretty apt when we're talking about a man who has had number one albums in five of those decades. James also looks after the music on Magic Radio, so stand by for my best Mellow Magic audition in the next episode of the podcast. Subscribe now, leave a review, and give us a retweet, and help to spread the word. You can also get in touch with suggestions of guests or your fan stories. It's Pod on Twitter, or Paul Podcast on Instagram. Cheers for now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.